Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Among African-Americans in Massachusetts, opioid overdose deaths rose 26% last year. There's an old saying, if it rains in the white community, there's a tsunami in the black community. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll continue our look at the opioid crisis around the region. And the wind is gathering behind offshore energy projects. Those other plans uh, hadn't done their homework. And uh, this one, the homework is done, Uh, the parents have signed off on it, and it's gone to the teachers. We'll consider whether new federal labels might sour a sweet business. Let's figure out a way to get to where the FDA needs to get without confusing consumers. And in a booming foodie paradise, big national food delivery services are entering into competition with the local guy. We have advantages that they can't offer because we know this community, because we are so attached to it. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Concerned that the U.S. government has lost track of some children who recently immigrated to the country on their own has brought the experience of unaccompanied youthful immigrants into public view. These children are placed with sponsors, usually parents or other relatives who are already living here. WBUR's Shannon Dooling has the story of one unaccompanied minor's journey to Everett, Massachusetts to find her mother. Lily is now 18 years old, but her story begins a few years ago in Honduras when Lily was just 16, traveling north with her 12-month-old son. There is a couple of reasons that I came here. But the main reason is because there is a lot of violence in Honduras. We agreed to refer to Lily by her middle name because she fears for her family's safety and because she's a survivor of rape. Her son, she says, is a product of that sexual assault. When Lily and her son left the country in 2016, Honduras had one of the highest rates in the world of violent deaths among women. I left in the morning one day took my kid and a couple of money and took a bus to the Guatemala border. From there, Lily made her way up to Mexico, where she worked for a few weeks and then found a smuggler to help her cross the border into the U.S. She says she walked through the desert for hours, carrying her baby and sharing a bottle of water among six people. Eventually, she was picked up by immigration officials. They asked me if I had a family or whatever, I told them, yeah, that my mom was here in Massachusetts, and they called her. She finally answered the phone. One of the officers told her that they had her daughter in the detention center. Lily spent a few days in that detention center before she was transferred to a shelter in California, where she received trauma counseling. In the meantime, her mom, in Everett, was receiving home visits from a caseworker. The visits were designed to make sure that Lily was going home to a safe place. She hadn't seen her mom in 11 years. Nearly 2,000 unaccompanied minors were released to sponsors throughout New England from October 2016 to September of 2017. 
Jeffrey Thielman heads up the Boston-based International Institute of New England, which contracts with the federal government to help facilitate the placement of unaccompanied youth with sponsors. Our program is designed to help the children who come to the border, who are unaccompanied, who are then put in a detention center for a period of time, paroled, and often have family in this region of the country. But Thielman says the agency's work is becoming more difficult for a few reasons. One is the Trump administration's decision to end a program that allowed young people in El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala to apply for refugee status while still living in their home country. It was designed to stem the flood of unaccompanied minors at the U.S.-Mexico border in 2014. The end of the program means young people looking to reunite with family may instead make the dangerous trek alone. Another obstacle, Thielman says, is finding the sponsors, the family already here in the U.S. I think a lot of sponsors don't want to come forward because they may be undocumented themselves and they may fear talking to government authorities because they could be subject to deportation. Recent reports that the federal government lost track of nearly 1,500 unaccompanied youth who'd been placed with sponsors has sparked anger and inspired the social media hashtag Missing Children. Health and Human Services Deputy Secretary Eric Hargan said in a statement that these 1,500 or so children are not lost. Instead, he says, their sponsors simply did not or could not respond to follow-up calls made by his agency. Lily has applied for asylum here in the U.S. for herself and her son. She's in school and is studying Italian. She and her son are still living with her mom, who is in the country without authorization. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling. Massachusetts has announced their pick for the first industrial-sized offshore wind project, the Vineyard Wind Project, which will build an 800-megawatt wind farm off the southern coast of Martha's Vineyard. It's the first of what could be many large-scale wind farms up and down our coastline. Here to talk with us about it is Bruce Gellerman. He's a Bostonomics reporter for WBUR. Welcome back to the show, Bruce. Hey, John. First of all, how big is this project anyway? Well, it is big as these things go. I mean, we've got a a small little boutique wind farm off Block Island that's 30 megawatts with five towers. But this one should be about 100 towers, and it should be generating something like 800 megawatts, so a lot bigger. You can think of it like the uh, Block Island wind was a toe in the water. This is going in waist deep. Didn't Massachusetts try to do something like this off the coast of Cape Cod a couple (laughs) of years ago, and it didn't go so well? What happened there? it didn't go so well. Well, it was, uh, it was death by a thousand legal fights. It was supposed to go off the coast of Cape Cod, the southern coast there, and, and it was fought by both uh, the, the Koch brothers and by Ted Kennedy, an unlikely pair to oppose a, a renewable wind farm. But that was the case, and it just died in court. They didn't have the funding. The technology at that point for these wind turbines was such that they were going to need 130 wind turbines in the water. Uh, it would have obstructed a, a bit of the view. It, there was all kinds of legal hassles and wrangling, and in the end, it just died. Is this going to face some of the same problems, people wondering about their beautiful views off the vineyard? No, I don't think so. I think this is well, well, well beyond that point. First of all, it's going to be 12 or 
a little few more miles off the coast of Martha's Vineyard. Uh, so you won't hardly see it. It'll be little dots on the on the horizon, if at all. So that kind of the visual problem is is, is it shouldn't be a problem. And it's gotten so far down by the, by now this whole request for proposals that was set in motion in 2016 by the governor has had lots of public hearings. And uh, there are people who oppose certain aspects of it. The fishermen, for example, they have considerations that are, are, are still to be resolved. The Vineyard Winds has met with the fishermen over a hundred times uh, to address those concerns, but they do have concerns about construction and how it's going to disrupt uh, the fishing off the coast. But uh, no, I don't think it's, this thing is good to go at this point. It, it has to go, go through state and federal environmental impact statements. Uh, Vineyard Winds has already gone uh, drafting uh, EISs, and so they're well ahead of that game. They've been very proactive. Around the same time, Rhode Island said it's going to uh, give the go-ahead to a 400-megawatt offshore wind project to deep water wind. A, a similar type of project, maybe not quite as big, Bruce, right? Well, they'll have 50 turbines about uh, as compared to 100 for the other one. It's half the energy output. But you're right. It, it's a lot bigger than the the Block Island wind farm. And that was a big surprise, John. We were not expecting anything like uh, the Rhode Island announcement because, you know, they were supposed to select one or two for the Massachusetts energy needs. And there's a provision in the state uh, request for proposal, which most people overlooked, which said that if other states wanted a piece of the action, they could have it. And Rhode Island saw the, the clause and they got a piece of the action. You mentioned the the towns that are being fitted up to take in this power, including mm-hmm. some communities where other power plants are closing or, or will be closing down. Mm-hmm. The mayor of New Bedford, Massachusetts, told the New York Times, quote, we know in light of northern Europe's experience with offshore wind that many U.S. ports will benefit from the arrival of the industry here. So talk about that, Bruce. What's it going to mean to the communities near these wind farms that are going to have a little bit of an economic boost? Well, you're right there, John, because these are things uh, supposed to generate not just wind, but generate a lot of jobs and build a homegrown infrastructure for expanding the offshore wind industry along the coast. So this is about jockeying for jobs. In New Bedford, they have the, uh, a marine terminal that the state put $113 million in to build. They'll be using that. So will the Deepwater Project. So Vineyard Wind and Deepwater will be using that as a staging area to to send things out, the blades and the turbines and the generators and and the uh, foundations, and send those out to sea. And yes, they really do want to build an industry. It's a little squirrely, John, about kind of jobs. There'll be hundreds and perhaps thousands of jobs. Calculating those is a little bit difficult because they measure those in job years. So you got to figure that out and who gets the jobs and how they get the jobs and how much they pay. But they want to develop a workforce. And I think this is one of the keys because, the, for example, the building these things is, is, is a significant expertise and maintaining them certainly is. Uh, wind turbine technicians is the most in-demand job in the United States, according to the federal government statistics. So they want to hook up with uh, Bristol Community College and some other educational institutions to to build a workforce that will allow them to build an industry that will service all of the coast. 
And why this area, Bruce? I mean, there's so much shoreline up and down the, the coast, uh, just on the Atlantic side of America. Why mm-hmm. this little area in and around Rhode Island and the south shore of, of Massachusetts that's getting all of this attention? Well, the wind blows very strong and very sure. And that's the thing, you know, is that you've got this incredible resource. It's called the, the Saudi Arabia of wind. And we're going to mine it. That's why. It's simple as that. It's uh, very strong and steady off the coast of uh, Martha's Vineyard. There's hundreds and hundreds of square miles that their federal government is leasing off to, to uh, prospective developers. So they're very ambitious plans to take advantage of this very ample resource. And is this just the tip of the iceberg, Bruce? You see a, a project like this get greenlighted, and then there's the possibility of more offshore wind farms going up throughout Massachusetts and the other states that you mentioned. We'll see a boom, you believe, in the next couple of years? Yes, uh, the, the Federal Bureau of Ocean Energy Management is starting to lease off other uh, areas. They they hold auctions. Uh, these companies bid on bid competitively, and uh, so they're starting to see other plots uh, being auctioned off. And there's going to be a, a, a sea change in the air in terms of wind power and in terms of the way we generate and get our electricity. So it all sounds very exciting. And not to throw cold water on this, Bruce, but, you know, we've been hearing about a lot of these projects that uh, Massachusetts has been trying to bring in, including, say, the Northern Pass transmission line mm-hmm. that was going to come down from Hydro-Quebec in Canada, and it was going to go through New Hampshire. And it got greenlit by the Baker administration in Massachusetts. But then the folks in New Hampshire said, not so fast. We don't want that project. And it's moved on. I guess I'm wondering if there's the possibility of any political impediments getting in the way of a project like this that, as you say, is so far down the road? I don't see it, John. I think those other plans uh, hadn't done their, done their homework. And uh, this one, the homework is done. Uh, the parents have signed off on it, and it's gone to the teachers. You know, this is a big deal, John, because uh, in terms of, uh, of, of pollution and climate change and uh, emissions, this takes something like 325,000 cars, the equivalent of the emissions from 325,000 cars off the road, uh, 1.6 million tons of CO2 a year. It's enormous. Bruce Gellerman covers energy and lots of other issues for Bostonomics at WBUR. Bruce, thanks so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome, John. Coming up, how the opioid crisis is affecting pregnant women. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Opioids are affecting individuals all across the U.S., and this week we're going to look at two groups who are affected by this crisis in different ways, pregnant women in New Hampshire and African Americans in Massachusetts. The number of pregnant women struggling with opioid abuse has increased significantly in the state of New Hampshire in recent years. With that, the number of newborns experiencing symptoms of opioid withdrawal, a condition known as neonatal abstinence syndrome, has jumped. New Hampshire health officials have decided to prioritize pregnant and newly postpartum women when allocating their scarce federal funds toward the opioid epidemic this year. Brita Green from NHPR has more. 
Julia Frew is a psychiatrist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, where she works with expecting moms struggling with substance abuse. These women have two distinct medical needs, prenatal care and treatment for their addiction. Frew says about five years ago, doctors in these different departments at the medical center realized they weren't coordinating well between each other, and the patients were worse off because of it. Often it was difficult for them to attend multiple appointments, and so they would either miss prenatal care appointments or in some cases miss addiction treatment appointments. When Fru says addiction treatment, that typically includes a visit with a psychiatrist and a regular dose of a medication, methadone or suboxone, that stops the symptoms of withdrawal, helping the women stay sober. Having these multiple appointments in different departments meant more transportation challenges for the women, more juggling of childcare and work schedules. Um, so the idea was born to create an integrated treatment program where women would receive both their addiction treatment and their prenatal care in the same place. It's a simple idea. Take the medical services these women need, plus recovery coaches and even childcare and a diaper and food bank, and put them in one location. Don't have them travel to different departments on different days. But the simple change has made a big difference. Heather Carter, for example, lives in line with her husband. She struggled with addiction most of her life. When she came here to the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Center in Lebanon, for the first time, she was about seven months pregnant. She'd been getting some treatment elsewhere, but it wasn't enough. What brought me to this program, I had been in a different suboxone program that didn't offer any support. Basically, I saw a doctor once a month and got a prescription. Carter's taken advantage of the counseling that's offered and the support group. She uses the clothing swap and the in-house child care sometimes when she comes. She says having all these services in one place has made all the difference, both for her and her family. I mean, for the first time ever um, since I was 14 years old, I've been sober from all substances, including marijuana, um, for almost a year now. As a mom grappling with addiction, Carter is not unique, but she is lucky. Lucky in that she has access relatively nearby to a program like this one. People at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and elsewhere say the program is working. Mothers are staying off drugs, and they and their babies are healthier than those who don't have access to this kind of help. The stakes for these women, as Frew with Dartmouth-Hitchcock points out, can be high. Pregnancy is this time of um, really incredible motivation for change. And so many people who've been struggling with substance use and who haven't previously sought treatment will seek treatment during a pregnancy. The problem is, in some areas of New Hampshire, options to get addiction treatment are incredibly limited. Recognizing this, the state recently directed nearly $3 million in much-awaited federal funds to tackling this challenge. It's focusing on this specific population, pregnant women with addiction. With the money, Fru's team is working with other health centers to replicate their model, building out programs that combine addiction treatment with maternity care. Well, the first thing that usually happens is our patients do check-in. Group they're working with is Coas County Family Health in Berlin. Um, as they come in, uh, they're entered into the computer. The health center's in a beautiful, sun-filled brick building, but as I walked in, I noticed a small orange sign on the door telling visitors there's no narcotics on site. The community has struggled economically, and there's a fair amount of drug-related crime, says the center's CEO, Ken Gordon. We were trying to dissuade people uh, from uh, breaking in, looking for drugs, because we don't have controlled substances uh, on the property. The center has long offered all the basics of family medicine, including prenatal care, to expecting moms, but they realized they needed to offer medication support for addiction alongside that. We just feel like we, we have to step up because if we don't, we're not sure that anybody else in the community can do this work. 
Autumn Crado is coordinating the program. They're getting regular training and guidance from Dartmouth-Hitchcock. In January, they just started offering Suboxone to pregnant women and women who've recently given birth. Yeah, I mean, I think it's huge. You know, a lot of our patients are traveling um, up to two hours away, and they have other responsibilities in their lives, such as work and children, and so I think this is going to be of a big help. A two-hour drive each way can be the difference between getting treatment or not. So in many cases, it'll not just be a big help, but a lifeline. Now, they're doing their best to get the word out that their program exists. Hi, how are you? Good. Kelly Sharon manages a recovery center in an old supermarket on the other side of town. The ceiling's been leaking like crazy, so today they're putting on a new roof. Workers pound away, above. Sharon sits on the couch next to a play area with toys and stuffed animals. She says someone from the local health center came by not too long ago to make sure she and her clients knew they were launching their program. It's good. They're starting with pregnant women. You know, I mean, the future of our community is at stake, and that starts with with the children. Coas County Family Health is hoping to expand their program over time. Dartmouth-Hitchcock is also working with six other practices across the state, aiming to reach even more women with this complicated blend of medical needs. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Brita Green. The opioid epidemic may have peaked in Massachusetts, at least for whites. Fewer Caucasians died of an overdose last year, reducing a seven-year trend. A few weeks ago, we heard about how Latinos in Massachusetts are being disproportionately affected by the crisis. But this week, we look at the African-American community. Among blacks in Massachusetts, opioid overdose deaths rose 26 percent last year. The news baffles some drug users, but it makes sense to others. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has more. A thin man with just a touch of gray leans against a wall in Boston's South End and takes a long drag on his cigarette. A passerby stretches out his hand. No, that's the only way I have. Gary ponders the question. Why are opioid overdose death rates steady or dropping for most drug users in Massachusetts, but rising for blacks? I have no idea why it's higher among blacks. None at all. Then, after a pause, Gary has an answer. I think it's the fentanyl. It has to be the fentanyl. The powerful synthetic opioid that has largely replaced heroin on the streets was in 85% of OD deaths last year. But why would it be hitting blacks harder than whites or Latinos? There's an old saying, if it rains in the white community, there's a tsunami in the black community. Because that's how things are. Sh rolls downhill, excuse the expression. This is George. We're only using first names in this story for people whose drug history might hurt their applications for employment or housing. In the fentanyl epidemic, George says, what rolls to the bottom of the hill is the worst cut of the drug. People who are more well-off will be closer to the distribution point, so they will get it in its purer form. By the time it gets to these communities, it's been tampered with many times. These are not chemists, so oftentimes these combinations end up being lethal. Especially for active or occasional drug users with no tolerance for opioids. Fentanyl knocks them cold. In seconds, no warning. It's in everything. It's in cocaine. They're finding it in pills, prescription pills. It really is like across the spectrum of drugs. Fentanyl mixed with cocaine, intentional or not, is the worry for blacks. State data shows blacks have the highest rate of combined cocaine and fentanyl overdose deaths and that the rate increased 35% in the last three years. For blacks, age also matters. Numbers out last December from the Centers for Disease Control showed a surge in opioid overdose deaths among blacks nationwide, highest among 45 to 65-year-olds. 
Here's Clarence, a 30-year on-and-off-again heroin user who's 53. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we've, we've been beating our bodies up all our life with this addiction that it breaks our immune systems down and everything. So when we try something that we haven't... Like fentanyl, the chance of an overdose spikes. Clarence says his sober periods have been in jail. Black men are six times more likely to spend time behind bars, often as a result of strict, some would say discriminatory, drug sentencing laws. Combine that risk with this one. In Massachusetts, the overdose death rate is 120 times higher for anyone recently released. And this is the crazy part about it is that we can be in jail for four or five years and get out of jail that day and want to get high that day. We don't even give ourselves a chance. If blacks do overdose, they aren't likely to call 911, says Renee, a short woman with a wide smile. The issue is mistrust. African-American people as a whole are not cop callers. Is that the same for 911? 911 is the same. Lily, a tall woman with bright red lipstick and blonde cornrows, says in her experience, there's no point of calling for help from a predominantly black neighborhood. It's a big difference. I lived in Dorchester and I moved to Norwood. In Norwood... There in a second. Dorchester, you're waiting about 45 an hour for a cop to come. If they show up. It's, it's kind of messed up. We feel like we're alone out here. So that's what, what makes you want to do drugs sometimes. In Connecticut, where opioid overdose death rates for blacks increased 135 percent in 2016, doctors are offering naloxone training and other sessions on the epidemic in predominantly African-American churches. In Boston, where black OD deaths have more than doubled since 2011, the city's Public Health Commission has expanded street outreach and home visits in Roxbury and Dorchester. State public health officials say they are looking into targeted interventions for blacks caught up in this opioid epidemic as well. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. We've been talking about states in our region experimenting with new ideas in voting, ranked choice, national popular vote, but those experimental tendencies end at the New Hampshire border. That state has been considering a bill that would tighten its voter residency laws, making it so that college students and other temporary residents would have a harder time voting in the state. Joining us to walk through this and some other news from the New Hampshire State House is Casey McDermott, an investigative and data reporter with NHPR's State of Democracy Project. Casey, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We've been reading about this voter residency bill that's been controversial in the New Hampshire State House. Tell us about it, if you would. So actually, there were two voter residency bills up this year. They were both almost identical. And essentially, it was moving to tighten the definition of residency with the goal of limiting voting eligibility only to people who had an intention to stay in New Hampshire long term. So the kind of subtext to that is that it could potentially make it harder for people like college students or people who are more transient to participate in the elections. And that was a lot of the argument that we heard from people who were against the bill. But despite a lot of opposition from New Hampshire Democrats, um, college students, voting rights activists. Both of those bills sailed pretty effortlessly through um, the legislature this session. Both chambers are controlled by Republicans. This is an issue that has a lot of Republican support. But then at the last minute, they hit a few kind of snags. And one of them actually ended up just dying because the chambers couldn't agree on some kind of technical changes that they wanted to be made between the two of them. 
Another one is actually now under review by the state Supreme Court. So basically, both chambers passed it, but the governor has been a little bit unclear on exactly where he stands in all of this, Republican Governor Chris Sununu. Um, He was asked about this issue back in December by an activist who was doing some work around voting rights. Um, he He was videotaped saying that he hated this legislation, but then, you know, once the legislative session got up and running and it actually came up for a vote and was being debated, he was a little bit more hard to pin down on where he stood on it. Once it actually kind of got closer to approaching his desk, he asked the court to take a look at it and decide whether it was constitutional or not. And now he's saying basically that if the court doesn't find any issues, he will in fact sign that bill into law. This sounds like such a mess. I guess I'm wondering why this has become such a big issue in New Hampshire right now. I mean, it's important to point out that voting is perennially a topic of debate in New Hampshire. I think just given the kind of political climate here, we obviously have a lot of elections. We have a lot of local races, just given the size of our legislature. We have a lot of high profile candidates and elections around the primary that come through. So election policy is always kind of in the spotlight, but that's been heightened in the last few years. And particularly since the 2016 election, um, in light of the kind of repeated and unfounded claims from the president and other top officials alleging that New Hampshire was the site of massive voter fraud that may have cost him and other Republicans um, the election in New Hampshire. So that has revived the issue and has given, um, I think, frankly, opponents of these moves to restrict voting rights a little bit more fire under them to organize and oppose these bills. And that has also helped to kind of raise the profile of the issue as well. Where are we with with an investigation into voter fraud in New Hampshire right now. You have top election officials in the state and top Republicans even who won't necessarily say that there is rampant voter fraud here, but will say that, you know, there are questions about public trust and public confidence and the integrity of the state's elections. And those are all phrases that come up a lot in legislative hearings about these issues that, well, we're, we're passing these laws in order to, you know, instill more confidence in the elections. And, and the response to that often from people who are questioning the need for this law is, well, what evidence do we have that voter fraud is actually, you know, a serious problem that would warrant these measures? This week, actually, the state attorney general's office and the secretary of state's office presented their own findings based on the the investigations that their offices have been doing to just kind of do their kind of due diligence of election oversight. And their findings echoed what we've reported, which is that that's just not true. There's actually no evidence that illegal voters have come across the border on buses. In 2016, for example, the state has so far only punished four people for wrongful voting. And actually, some of those had to do with just kind of confusion or misunderstanding. Now, there was another piece of legislation that people who are trying to open up the process a bit more more put forward having to do with online voter registration. And it seems as though in the current mood, that's something that didn't have a whole lot of of chance of passage. Right, right. And it's actually, again, important to note that just, you know, this idea of moving toward anything that would be more kind of computerized or digitally based is a hard a hard sell to begin with in a state where we do much of our election processes with pen and paper and have for a while. And our secretary of state uh, has historically been very cautious of new technology. And in fact, you know, 
amid the kind of national debate that we're having over election security, he feels very validated in that because we have paper trails where other states do not to back up the results of an election in the case that we would need to audit something or trace some kind of outside interference. So that's all to say that New Hampshire is one of about a dozen states that does not have online voter registration. And a lot of the opposition to it did come from this kind of wariness around cybersecurity issues. The Secretary of State did say that he would be open to studying the idea moving forward, or his office did rather, but it remains to be seen whether or not that will actually kind of move forward. It's interesting, Casey, the last couple of weeks on the show, we've taken a look at how uh, Maine has moved forward with this ranked choice voting system and how Connecticut, amongst other states, has joined a a national popular vote coalition. It seems as though some of the New England neighbors of New Hampshire are going pretty far down the road toward changing the way things work, but it doesn't seem like these changes are coming to New Hampshire anytime soon. No, and I think that Again, going back to our secretary of state, he's been in his office for about 40 years. He's the longest serving secretary of state in the nation. And he will repeatedly say that, you know, New Hampshire does its elections in a certain way for a reason. And as far as he's concerned, our turnout numbers, which consistently are among the kind of highest in the nation, would suggest that the way that we're doing it is is right. If it's not broke, there's no reason to fix it. So that has historically held a lot of weight among legislators. His perspective is is very, um, you know, very powerful in the state house on election debates. And I think he sets a lot of the tone for, you know, the argument that we should just keep things the way they are. Several New England states have been strengthening gun control measures and have also been looking at legalizing recreational marijuana. Where do either of those two really hot button issues stand in this polarized state of New Hampshire? So there was a bill that was advanced, actually, and I believe passed the House of Representatives here earlier this year that would have legalized the recreational use of marijuana. But that was ultimately sent to interim study. Um, We did decriminalize possession of small amounts of marijuana recently, but our governor, Republican Chris Sununu, has been pretty clear about not wanting to move forward with legalization, which is not uncommon here. Past Democratic governors have taken the same position. When it comes to gun control, again, we're not seeing a lot of movement in efforts to add new gun control measures in New Hampshire. I think, you know, whether or not that's something that will move forward will depend a lot on how the elections later this year shake out and how the legislature is composed in terms of its party makeup. I I think that it's important to point out that we we reelect our legislature every two years. And right now, Republicans have total control of the state house in every respect. Um, And when it comes to voting rights, when it comes to particularly gun control measures, those two issues issues are ones where there's really deep partisan divides on a lot of the legislation that we've seen. But, you know, Democrats have had a fairly good record in the last year or so in some of the special elections that we've seen in New Hampshire. So I think that's kind of galvanizing the left to be somewhat optimistic. Casey McDermott is an investigative and data reporter with the State of Democracy Project at New Hampshire Public Radio. Casey, is always great to talk with you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Coming up, does your maple syrup contain extra sugar? Well, according to the federal government, it does. It's confusing, and it's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy.
Maple syrup producers in New England take pride in their pure natural product. So when the U.S. Food and Drug Administration proposed new labels to say that maple syrup contains added sugar, well, producers fought back. As VPR's John Dillon reports, the outrage over the proposed label is especially strong in Vermont, the nation's top producer of maple syrup. Maple syrup is the sweet essence of the northern forest, and Roger Brown and his brother Doug work long hours to make it. So we're uh, finishing, kind of cleaning up from the end of the, the season, so we're pulling, pulling our spouts. The Browns own Slopeside Syrup in Richmond, Vermont. They've been in the woods since the sap stopped running this spring, pulling 23,000 spouts from trees spread over 600 very steep acres. On this May Day, the forest is full of birdsong and blessedly free of black flies. I think you pull about a thousand spouts a day per person if you... On a long day. On a long day. <laughs> so it's 100% labor dependent. Roger Brown uses a long tool with a hammer claw on the end to pull the spouts. He caps the line and it seals with vacuum pressure. This hard work is at the heart of what makes their product different from the other stuff called syrup on store shelves. That's the reason Brown thought the FDA's added sugar label might make sense. So my first reaction when I heard about it was, wow, boy, great, right? We're gonna, the added sugar is gonna have to be labeled and maple syrup is, obviously there's no added sugar, so it's not gonna have to have the labeling and all the other uh, fluid products that we compete against, Mrs. Butterworth, um, you know, Log Cabin, whatever, those all have added sugar. So they're all going to have added sugar labels. So that's going to be a great differentiator for us. But the FDA had something else in mind. As part of a campaign to educate consumers about excess sugar in their diets, the FDA wants to label maple syrup as containing added sugar, meaning it's an additional amount in your diet. The updated nutrition facts label will really help consumers be aware of added sugars in the diet that are coming from all sources. Dr. Susan Main directs the FDA's Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition. She says federal dietary guidelines say that Americans should get no more than 10% of their daily calories from added sugar. Too much sugar, she points out, can lead to obesity and diabetes. So this is really aimed at giving consumers information that they need to try to stay within that 10% of daily calories recommendation that comes out from the dietary guidelines. But why say on the label that sugar is, quote, added to maple syrup when it's not? Maine says the FDA has proposed a compromise. It will allow additional language to state the sugar is found naturally in honey and maple syrup. And that was our suggestions of how honey and maple syrup producers can explain on food labels that, for example, all of these sugars come from pure maple syrup. I, I think it's confusing, and I think confusing labeling hurts everybody. Roger Brown says the revised label will still leave consumers questioning what's in their maple syrup. So let's, let's figure out a way to get to where the FDA needs to get without confusing consumers. In Washington, Vermont sugar makers and their trade association have found allies among honey producers, who would also be covered by the labeling requirement. It makes for an interesting political dynamic, as Brown explains. There is more Republican honey production, you could say, than there is Republican maple production. Maple's um, all blue. Maple's not quite all blue, but it's more blue than honey. And there's not a lot of honey in the Northeast, which is where maple is concentrated. Um, so it's a so it's a great 
kind of team to, to work on this stuff. The FDA is accepting public comment on the new rules until June 15th, and it's given maple and honey producers up to three years to comply with the new labeling requirements. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. While maple syrup is considered a New England classic, food delivery apps are relatively new, and Portland, Maine has become a battleground for the food delivery business. App-based food delivery companies like Grubhub and Uber Eats are battling for consumers across the nation, and this turf war has reached into smaller markets, including Portland's revved-up restaurant scene. But they have an entrenched competitor to contend with, too, the local guy. Fred Bever tells us more. If you're feeling peckish, food delivery apps make it pretty easy to tap into Portland's dynamic foodie marketplace. A few taps on the smartphone, choose a restaurant, authorize payment, including a delivery fee, and maybe half an hour later... This was uh, Zen Chinese Bistro. Ah, Mamushu. So, yes, and uh, yeah, Mushi and... Ben Bisanko is a part-time driver for a food delivery app called Two Dine In. He says in about 15 hours a week, he makes more than 200 bucks in tips and salary, a nice supplement to his regular supermarket job. It's pretty fun, actually. You see a lot of people, experience a lot of new restaurants, and I didn't know a whole lot about Portland, so... Now I know a little bit more. To Dine In has been connecting customers and restaurants in greater Portland for a decade. Yeah, started out very small, um, ridiculously note to the grindstone for a long time. CEO Mike Bolduck says To Dine In started as a desktop venture, which morphed into a smartphone app about five years ago. It's been growing slowly, but he's got 60 employees part and full time with almost 100 restaurants signed up now. It's quickly becoming a more crowded space, though. National food delivery apps Grubhub and Uber Eats both just opened up in Maine. Bolduc says at first he worried his company might be caught in the crossfire. A little scary just because we've never had that. But now that they're here trying to really just use this as a platform to get us out even more. Bolduc has redoubled his efforts to sign up new restaurants, and the big guys are knocking on doors, too. That includes at the Flatbread Company, a popular waterfront pizza palace, where Thomas Cancellari is general manager. So Grub had a, a, approached us, and we were definitely willing to, to give it a try and see how it worked. Cancellari has worked with Two Dine In for years, and he says outsourcing delivery to the local company adds measurably to sales, netting profits even after the app service takes its 25% cut. And even though Grubhub negotiated a slightly bigger cut, it's worthwhile experimenting with both, he says, because the newcomer fills a niche. I mean, that's when people travel, um, stay in hotels, travel for business, you know, things like that. If they're already using Grubhub in their market, when they come to Portland, they're already familiar with it. And that familiarity travelers have with the big apps, their stickiness in consumer smartphones nationwide, should put smaller companies on notice. So says Dan Adams, a managing partner at the international consulting firm of Deloitte, who points to what happened to one local delivery app in Pittsburgh last year when Uber Eats joined a growing list of competitors. They said at the time, you know, we're not overly concerned. You know, we survived the last two entrants just fine. And then by November, they were out of business. I will say that we're, we tend to be opportunistic. Katie Norris is a spokeswoman for Grubhub. She says the company has bought out smaller competitors before, and she makes it sound like it probably will again. And if we see a good opportunity, we look into them, but I can't comment. 
more directly on anything beyond that. Back at Flatbreads, manager Thomas Cancellieri seems torn about joining forces with the opportunistic national companies. He's seen them gobble up smaller companies when he worked in the Boston area. And buying local is a big part of Portland's foodie ethic and Flatbreads, too. So he feels pretty loyal to the local delivery service. They have a local presence. They know the roads. They know the streets. They know the restaurants. Mike and I are good friends. And it's that kind of neighborly partisanship that's keeping two dine-ins, Mike Bolduc, optimistic. We have advantages that they can't offer because we know this community, because we are so attached to it. Dan Adams, the Deloitte analyst, happens to live in Portland. And he's a two-dine-in user, too. He says if the company can get creative and further exploit its local relationships, it might just survive the onslaught from its new competitors. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. We'd like to leave you with some sounds from a place that some of you may be heading this weekend. Keen Southard spent many of his childhood weekends hiking and camping with his family in New Hampshire and Vermont. From that early age, he imagined one day he would hike the legendary Appalachian Trail. Southard went on to study composition and theory, and all the while, the idea of hiking the trail and composing a piece about the experience percolated in his mind. In April, Southard completed an Appalachian Trail Symphony, New England Symphony No. 1, inspired by his 66-day, 734-mile hike of the New England portion of the trail. My great-grandfather bought a farm in the small mountain town of Shrewsbury, Vermont, and then my grandfather was born there. The Appalachian Trail actually passes right through the town of Shrewsbury, Vermont. And so I was thinking, of course, about my grandfather as I was hiking through. My grandfather is where I get my musical abilities from. He always wanted to be a conductor. He actually went to college to study music in the late 1930s. He didn't complete his studies and never fully got to realize his musical dreams, so I kind of feel like I'm realizing his musical dreams for him. I actually still have his music theory, his harmony exercises and notebooks that he did all out by hand. And I decided later on to use this uh, chorale that he wrote and put it into the Vermont movement itself as a way of uh, showing how I was thinking about him while hiking through the town of his birth. Am I part of a long line of composers using nature as their muse? Yeah, I'd consider myself in that line. And particularly, I'm really inspired by New England. I grew up in Massachusetts, and my parents took me and my siblings on so many trips up to New Hampshire and Vermont. And it wasn't until leaving New England and going off to school that I realized how much this region is ingrained in me and how much I love it. Well, so I entered the trip knowing I was going to write this piece afterwards, but kind of having a blank slate to start off, and to have the music and the ideas come out of my experience. I had a small um, notebook with um, staff paper on it, with the staff lines. It was my journal, where I could journal in words every night. But then also, whenever I had musical ideas that came to me, 
And then I also had a small portable um, digital audio recorder so I could record sounds out there as well. I was thinking about the shape of the piece, the large-scale form. And then once I got back from the trail, I kind of got down to the nitty-gritty of all the little thousands of details putting those all together. Animals that were memorable, but not in a good way, were the mosquitoes and flies. The violins simulate the sound of these uh, mosquitoes and flies buzzing around your head. And then all these different bird sounds, you know, kind of form a tapestry around the clarinet moving through the forest. Mount Washington is the highest point on the hike and the highest point in all New England. Right before the final ascent to the summit of Mount Washington, there's actually this terrifying sign that says, Stop. This area ahead has the worst weather in America. Many people have died from exposure. Turn back now if the weather's not good. There's this sort of danger and fear that I had on this final ascent to Mount Washington, knowing how quickly the weather can change. In the music, that's signified by this really loud, dissonant, almost overwhelming music. But at the same time, on Mount Washington, I had some of my most incredible moments of um, calm and stillness when I was sitting just on the side of the mountain near the top and looking out over all of New England. You just take it one step at a time. The whole point of this is experiencing this whole journey of being out here. I took breaks whenever I got really tired, and then I just kept on going. That story was produced by Mary Williams for Vermont Public Radio. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.